<laughs> I know this can feel a little bit awkward, but I'm just going to finger gun at you. And that's when we're going to say like, hey, I'm Sarah. Okay, so you ready? Three, two, one. Hey, I'm Sarah. Hey, I'm Laura, and we are Bible Bitches. So, Sarah, I heard you did a little pond hopping. You went across the pond. I want you to tell me about your travels. What was the weirdest thing you saw, and what was it, and where was it? You know, I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't see anything that struck me as super weird. I think maybe being in LA has jaded me to the weirdness or maybe just like disgustingness because I feel like what I would remember as weird would be something shocking to me or gross. And I've seen too many of those things in LA. Yes. So what I'm hearing you say is the weirdest thing you saw was like, the quaintness of the communities you were in. <laughs> <laughs> Only five people were like, hey, do you want some hash? And then I was like, go away. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering if when you were across the pond, did you run into the Garden of Eden, Sarah? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but there's an angel with a flaming sword there that might have a few choice words for you. Well... I feel like every dude I've dated can agree that my vagina is the Garden of Eden and that the flaming sword is probably my personality. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, bring us back. Not my vagina. Not your vagina. Actual tree that was in the book of Genesis, the the tree of good and evil. Um, What do you think it would taste like? Like the bark or the fruit of the tree? Yeah, the bark. <laughs> just <laughs> not, just not on the bark. Like I don't know. Like you've got some tasty maple trees, and like their leaves don't taste good. But that, that tasty maple syrup. It's probably yeah. what is that fruit that's like super, super smelly? Durian. The durian. It's probably a durian. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Oh my gosh, I had a friend. Um, shout out to Casey if you're listening to this. I believe she has eaten durian. I know she smelled durian. She was in Indonesia for a while and could viscerally tell me what durian was like. So I'm wondering, Casey, do you think that the fruit of the tree uh, of good and evil tastes like durian? But today we are talking about Eve, the first woman named in the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. So I'm going to give a real quick and dirty background. Genesis was written a long time ago. No one knows how long. And scholars believe, based on examining the literary structure, that it was originally told via oral tradition, handed down generation to generation by storytellers before it was originally written down by different authors. And those scholars call those authors J-E-D-N-P. If you're looking for a helpful acronym, try Just Eat Dip, please. I'm always looking for a helpful acronym for J-E-D-P. So there you go. Just Eat Dip, please. Uh, But Sarah, I want you to tell me a little bit more about the J and E authors. Okay. You've got the J, the E, the D, and the P, right? The Just Eat Dip, please. Four different authors. (laughs) Of Genesis. First of all, some scholars believe the J account was written by people in southern Judah or the southern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC. They refer to God as Yahweh, and J is the German way of saying Y for Yahweh or Y H W A. So that's how this account got its name. 
the scholars who believe in the J account. They are responsible for the first creation account in Genesis 1-1 to 2-3. Second, there is the E account, which was perhaps written in the 8th century BC as well, as well and originated in the northern kingdom of Israel. They use the word Elohim for God. Scholars believe that this is responsible for the second creation account in Genesis 2, 4 to 2, 25. So just as a recap, you have the J account, which is probably written by people of Southern Judah. They refer to God as Yahweh. This is the account of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. And then you have the E account, which was also probably written around the same around the same time, 8th century BC, and it was originated by the Northern Kingdom of Israel. But they use the word Elohim for God, and this is the second account of the creation story, Genesis 2, 4 through 2, 25. Um, there's also the D and the P, but, you know, we really, just for our purposes today, we want to just delve into the, the J and the E account. Now... Um, you may want to go pause and read these accounts. The, you know, the J account being the first creation account from Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. The E account being Genesis 2, 4 to 2, 25. Um, so we're going to give you the quick rundown. So the first account from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, 3 is one that starts with, in the beginning, and divides creation into six days, culminating in the creation of humans on the sixth day, uh, that's Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And I'm going to read in my most majestic voice now. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God rested on the seventh day because that's a solid work week yeah. for making the world. So in the second creation account, that's where we actually run into Adam and Eve for the first time. In this account, humans were created at the beginning. And I think that's really important here. God plants a garden that just happens to have a tree of good and evil that Adam and Eve are not supposed to eat from and makes Adam out of the dirt and sees Adam is lonely, makes a bunch of animals, he's still lonely, he needs a helper and makes Eve out of his rib. I don't want to gloss over the piece where like God creates Adam and then out of, out of Adam, Eve is created. That becomes a very problematic piece of Christian theology throughout history. Mm-hmm. So anyways, whatever, she becomes his wife and they are naked. And I just want to put a pin in the whole like Eve is created of Adam's rib piece because we need to get to that later. So then there's a snake that comes along and it's like, yo, you guys, maybe the fruit from the forbidden tree is like not that bad. Check it out, Eve. Like you seem like you have loose morals. Maybe you should <laughs> check it out. <laughs> you're, a, you're a lady of the night. <laughs> Um, so when God talks to them, Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. And God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.14 and following, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all of the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I was just going to say that it hurts my heart a little bit because in college, I had a snake named Cat Morgan. <laughs> so so I'm feeling a little, little sadness for Cat yeah. Morgan right now. Yeah. It's a little, little tough break for, my, for, for the serpent that I had, but I let my friends name him, so don't judge me. I'm only judging you because you made the poor choice to let your friends name them and not because of what they actually named. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the serpent gets a tough break. And then God says to Eve in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbirth very, childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Ooh, wolf. This is my least favorite creation account. <laughs> this is just like, I can't, you guys. So before God cr- kicks them out of the Garden of Eden and puts an angel with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life contained within, essentially being like, you guys can't come back in. God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of its field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and for to dust you will return. Also, from dust you are, and from dust you will return, that is a line that we use as total aside in the Christian church, for Ash Wednesday, a lot of Ash Wednesday services, you will hear that. And it is kind of a reminder of your mortality, right? It's a lot in American culture, we sanitize death and we don't like to think about it. And so that line is really helpful, I think, to say like, you know, we've got this one, as Mary Oliver put it, this one wild and precious life, what are you going to do with it? And it kind of helps you remember that. So that line in and of itself, I, you know, I have a lot of problems with that creation account and more so how we uh, interpret it. But I like that line a lot. So, uh, Emily asked us via Twitter if we would address John Piper's complimentary gender roles, and here we go. John Piper is a Southern Baptist blowhard who champions the idea of men being above women and cites the second creation story as proof. He states that egalitarianism, or the idea that women and men are equal, has, quote, silenced the idea that men as men, by virtue of their created God-given maleness, apart from any practical competencies that they have or don't have, have special responsibilities to care for and protect and honor when women. I am already vomiting on myself. Uh, <laughs> he goes further to say that church leadership roles are only for men and discourages women from working outside the home. So that's super gross. And I just want to know, John Piper, do you know that women are actual human beings? Like, I feel like you missed the entire first creation account where both men and women were created in God's image. And I would just like to invite you to read that. So crack a book, buddy. No, I feel like um, everything about this is like yawn style, boring patriarchy. But also it's like a, it's like a sad attempt to disprove the fact that there was a woman who 
made the decision to like choose knowledge. There was a dis- there was a woman who chose to ask the question why, and that is the foundation of knowledge. But according to a story on Baptist News Global, which frankly I don't read. They tend to be, for those of you who are like, what is Baptist News Global? They tend to cover more like moderate Baptist stories. They they would probably say the entire Baptist like world, but they are kind of more of a, they take a moderate take on things. So this douchebag, John Piper, believes that egalitarianism has caused, and this is obviously so silly, but John Piper believes that egalitarianism has caused an increase in domestic violence and cites the hashtag MeToo movement as part of the problem. And, like, I, I, I can't even take that seriously. Like, I think we should just give him tool of the week status. I agree we should give him tool of the week status. So thanks, Baptist News Global, for uh, shining a light on this bullshit. I also think that the response to his line of thinking can come from Phyllis Tribble, who's a well-known Old Testament scholar who... Uh, helped to found Wake Forest University Divinity School, where Sarah and I went. She also wrote Texts of Terror, which is an excellent book. She notes that gender didn't really exist until Eve was differentiated from Adam. And the context of the Hebrew word, and I'm going to butcher this, Ezer Kenedgo, for helpmate, i.e. whenever God makes someone else to be in the garden with Adam, in that second creation account, that word for helpmate in Hebrew doesn't have an inferior idea attached to it in the same way that helper does in the English language. It's more one of equal status. So Tribble notes that Eve isn't dumb and she weighs the serpent's words along with Adam's because they're on equal footing. Yeah, and I think like another interesting part about this is the idea that when humanity chose to eat of the fruit, when humanity chose to like have knowledge over against this like godhood, and in, like uh, there's this really interesting quote from Joseph Campbell that says that in 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 this context, Joseph Campbell is talking about folklore as a means of like reinterpreting the history of like giving forth or or like passing down the history right and he says in the old testament story god points out the one forbidden thing now god must have known very well that man and joseph campbell's kind of a sexist dick in this point like when he says man he means humanity it's also an older book it's not that old like this is in the 80s there's no excuse but whatever yeah so God must have known very well that man was going to eat the forbidden fruit. But it was by doing that, that man became the initiator of the human experience. Life really began at that act of disobedience, is what this is really saying. I feel like this is a very pivotal moment that we can all understand because it's the moment that we became an individual, like truthfully, like had to start making choices. When you're a child, the choices don't make sense. But when you begin to understand the choice, that's the adultness of it. I think that's a really good point, Sarah, because, you know, whatever I was in school for marriage and family therapy, we talked a whole lot about like developmental phases. 
And I really think that we're talking about like the birth of humanity here, right? That, that when people are writing about this, they're trying to figure out when did we differentiate ourselves from God? When were we not children anymore? What does that look like? And whatever that existential crisis thing means, right? And so think about when you were first aware, right, of yourself as separate from family or yourself as separate from parents. And this is, this is what humanity is grappling with. And that's a huge thing. So I think it's really doing the text a disservice to try to devolve it down into like, woman, bad, man, good. <laughs> like that's just really missing the point of this. Um, and to say that women are inferior also just entirely negates the first creation account where it specifically states that God created both male and female in God's image, making us both equal and equally reflective of God's image. And I, you know, I just want to note, we are speaking in gender binaries due to the Hebrew language and the time in which this was written. Um, obviously we, you know, we, we really want to say that we respect the pronouns of, you know, they and their as well, and that everyone is created in God's image. And so, yeah, I think, I think now we have the benefit of being in the 21st century, kind of reading back into some of these texts and saying like, these people were wrestling with some really huge existential questions. And however you identify, you know, you are made in God's image. That's my belief. It's totally fine, whatever you think about that. But I think just to note that everyone is equal, right? That everybody has value. And so this text, regardless, in my point of view, again, I'm a Christian minister, that I think it has value in that it shows that everyone does have value right? This is, this is my view of this text says that other people read this and get something completely wacko out of it. But that's my view of it is that you have intrinsic worth because you have a spark of divinity inside of you. You are a beautiful person at creation, regardless of your pronoun. You are, you are wonderful just the way you're made. Yeah. But like, we don't have a clear view of divinity. We can see a human being whose evilness transcends other people's evilness, right? So like, could you, could you have a human that transcends goodness, that, that their goodness is better than other humans' goodness, right? right. Or, or evilness worse than other people's evilness? I would say yes, in that Hitler was pretty fucking bad, right? Yeah. Like that, that is a, and we've had people that do commit genocide. I think that we have had cycles of this throughout history, right? Where we have, you know, you have on the one hand, your Martin Luther Kings and your, you know, Ruby Sales and your, you know, people who are willing to stand up and do what's right at any given moment. But you also have people who utterly just do horrific, terrible things. And I think that all goes back to your theology, right? As to whether or not you think there's a, a rhyme or reason to it all or not, that we're just trying to learn from our mistakes, period. Or if there is a God co-creating with us who is also, you know, maybe learning as this God goes too. So maybe this God is also, to me, you know, as someone who kind of goes by process theology that says that God is learning and growing with us, the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus is kind of chastised by a woman who's like, you say that you're only, you know, here for the Jews, but do you not also give crumbs to the dogs? Like, can't you help me out? Can you help me out here, bro? Like, <laughs> come on. So I like, and she teaches him and he's like, oh crap. Yeah, you're right. No, like I'm going to heal your daughter. 
So I feel like God's also learning with us, which kind of shows the sort of interaction between humanity and divinity, that we are all in a process together of learning and growing, which takes a long, it's a long, it's a long process. And then you have people who think that God is 100% amazing and we just suck and we're trying to get there. And like, (laughs) I don't think that's helpful. I don't. But you know, you do you people, whatever. But what does that mean about the barometer for what is good and evil? So my theory is that everyone's idea of what is good and what is evil is based off of a general buy-in to a societal choice for what is the baseline for living within a society and not being cast out you've got this like line where if you play by x rules you stay above the line and if you don't then you are above you are below the lines right and there are societal and also within that there are also ethical ramifications but uh all of those choices are based on the society itself and its progress through history I would counter and say that while that is true in terms of the majority culture, because I tend to be more, I, I tend to be more of a liberation theologian. So like while I follow process theology, I'm also in deliberation theology. And so I think that where God and ethics most lie is not within the majority culture, but where, how are we treating minority cultures? So what does it mean to follow a God who is embodied in a first century poor Palestinian Jew who would be pulled over by TSA and potentially shot by police officers, right? Like, what does that, what does that mean? Right. And so I think for me as a white American, if I follow, if in my version of God, if I am following someone who is not, who I don't think necessarily identifies with it, with majority culture would say, are you, you know, paying attention to, and the language there would be least of these, but that really means in the, in your culture, who do you identify as least of these, right? Um, so who's in prison, who's being deported, who, you know, that kind of thing. Then it doesn't really benefit me to be, to believe in that kind of God, right? It's actually against my own, I don't know, self-preservation to do that. Um, and, and I think that's, that's how you know that your ethic is sound. So like, regardless of if you're atheist, if you're agnostic, if you're Christian, if you're Buddhist, if you're whatever, I think you've got to really think very critically about the entire culture, not just your own. So I know we got way off topic. I think the whole good and evil thing is one that might be something that we explore in the future, because I think it's a really good question. But my takeaway from this would be that I really don't think that we should discount like either creation account. I think they're both important, but I am, I am very, I really like that first creation account because nobody talks about it. Everybody's like Adam and Eve, but I'm always like, uh, we're all created in God's image. So it's a fine piece of literature. Even if you are like, just like, I don't really dig the Bible and I don't want to read it. It's, it's kind of beautiful. No, I like it. I like the, I like the first one so much more than the second because it gives women a voice and that leads to a nuance that the second one doesn't. And um, I like it. 
Also, bros, don't cite Eve to make women inferior. Don't come for us. Or you will end up a tool of the week. Yeah, for sure. And you do not want to be a Bible bitch's tool of the week. <laughs> so uh, do we have any uh, listener tweets? Oh, we did. That was Emily um, asking us about John Piper. So we thank you for your tweet, Emily. And if you want to tweet at us, you can tweet at us at Bible Bitches. Um, or you can message us on our Facebook fan page, Bible Bitches. Or you can email us, which, God bless, Sarah checks that. I never do. Um, BibleBitches at gmail.com. That's B-E-T-C-H-E-S. Mm-hmm gmail you know they're a little prudish it's cool whatever big shout out to engaged gays for hosting us they are amazing there are always so many good articles on that also like we love you miss eves you can check her out at uh yo eves on twitter and an outro music we feature her song tnt she's got some new work coming out soon yeah yeah and then we've got aaron doodles like tell us about that yeah, he does our um, our artwork, so um, he's also a cartoonist and an architect. He's got some real funny content. He's currently trolling Governor uh, Matt Bevin of Kentucky, who is basically a tiny Trump. He's pretty terrible, so his stuff is really funny. So check him out at Aaron Doodles. Um, so thanks, y'all. Just message us if you have any questions or comments, and we'd love to talk to you. Yeah. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.